I was born and raised in an affluent home. My parents always sought to provide me with valuable experiences, influential connections, and the best education that money could buy. I was fortunate enough to excel in school and quickly became adept at using my resources to rise to the top. I got an accelerated start in my profession and quickly found myself with influence in the community. I leveraged my family and my friendships to attract others to me and put me in places of leadership. As a devout believer, I have always put my faith first and thanked God for these numerous blessings. To put it simply, life came easily to me and I soaked up everything that it had to offer. The other day I was at work and I heard a commotion outside my office and so I looked out the window and I noticed a crowd gathering just across the street. Wanting to know what it was all about, I grabbed my jacket and walked over there and by the time I had reached the group, throngs of people were excitedly talking to one another. Suddenly a man quieted the crowd with great authority and began speaking eloquently about a new life that he had to offer. The crowd hung on his every word. And it was interesting because he didn't seem like somebody with authority. He didn't seem like a person of power or influence. No, his clothes were dusty and torn, his hair unkempt. The group of men advising him seemed relatively mundane, quite ordinary people. Yet still, I longed to listen to each and every one of his words. As he finished up, the crowd converged upon him and swallowed him up from my view. And so I turned to the man next to me and said, who was that? And as he pushed forward into the crowd, he looked back at me and said, Jesus. I avoided the crowds and walked back to my office, assuring myself that soon I would find an opportunity to connect with this man. That evening, as I headed home, I noticed a group of men about to depart for a journey, getting their camels and horses ready to go. And I strained my eyes to see who it was. Sure enough, it was the man from earlier that day. And so I began walking in his direction. As I grew closer, I saw that they were about to depart, so I broke into a jog. It seemed foolish, but this might be the only opportunity I had to connect with this intriguing individual. As I got closer, his eyes locked on mine, and I fell to my knees. I'm not sure why I had not run in quite some time, and so I probably just needed to catch my breath. But as I knelt before him, I said, "'Good teacher!' What must I do to be a part of this life that you offer? He brushed aside my salutations, obviously not impressed with my forced humility. And sternly he told me, follow the commandments of your fathers and obey the Hebrew law. I smirked. He didn't understand. Jesus, I already follow after the law. I'm a devout believer. I'm a man of honor in my community and family. I am a good person. I want to know what's next. 
His expression changed. And with a warm tone and outstretched arm, he said to me, then let go of everything you hold tightly to. Give up your power, your authority, your influence, your wealth. Shake up your life until you feel absolutely helpless and come with me. I froze. I stood speechless before him, staring at his outstretched hand of invitation before me. I locked eyes with his. My mind raced. My skin was hot. My heart pounded in my chest. I looked down, overwhelmed by his gaze. It's too great of a risk, I thought to myself. I have everything I could possibly want and a bright future before me. Surely there is another way. So unsettled, I turned and slowly walked home. That night, Jesus' words continued to repeat in my head. And as I slipped comfortably into my bed, I couldn't help but feel that I had just missed out. This is the story of the rich young ruler. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to come before you. Lord, we pray that our hearts would be unsettled this morning. That, Lord, our lives would be shaken up. That, Lord, our vision would be cleared so that we could see your outstretched arm before us. And, Lord, that we would not hesitate as we reach out and take it. Amen. Now, this is a fairly familiar story to us, and it can be found in uh, three of our Gospels, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, And you can look up the passages later on that are on the screen. Uh, We're going to be focusing today on Mark chapter 10 as Mark recounts this story. We don't know a lot about this man. He's kind of come out of the blue. We haven't heard from him before, and we never hear from him again. But we know a few things. First... He is rich. In verse 22 from Mark 10, it says that he has many possessions. He has great wealth. He has homes and land, cattle, livestock, and servants. He has obviously been very successful at whatever he has done. He has likely come from a place of means and has continued to pursue his excellence well into his career. The way that he's addressed, we recognize that he is a ruler. He has authority, he has power, whether that's a religious ruler, a governing ruler, or maybe a leader in the marketplace. We're not sure, but the man has influence. He's the type of person that when he is in a room, all eyes are on him. He is thrust into leadership even when he wasn't anticipating it. He has achieved much. And also as we look in verse 17, as it addresses him as a man, we recognize in the Greek that this word represents a generational identifier. 
a word that actually means a man in his 20s or 30s. So for all the wealth, all the power, and all the authority he has, he's also done it at a young age. He is the quintessential go-getter, an achiever, a maximizer. And as we see in this passage, he is only identified by the things that he has done. By the success that he has found, by the influence that he has. I'd like to say that we can't relate well with this person, but if truth be told, I think many of us fall in the same shoes. We come from great wealth in comparison to our brothers and sisters around the globe. We have endless opportunities before us. And we too identify ourselves by the things that we have done. When I think about how I'm doing in life, I quickly think about the accomplishments that I have, the achievements that I have gained, the friends and connections that I have made. We have entire social medias based on what we have done so that we can connect with others that have done just as much. We introduce ourselves to others with a list of our dues. We introduce our spouses and our children with their successes. And we evaluate others on theirs. A few weeks ago, I was playing racquetball with my good friend Aaron Foster. And we were playing for a little while. It was just into the first game. And a young guy popped his head into the room and said, Hey, would you mind if I joined you for a game of cutthroat? Which, unbeknownst to us, is three-way racquetball. So he taught us and we, he came on in and we played for two hours together. And if you've ever played racquetball, you know that it is very difficult to hold a conversation. It's echoey. You can't understand anything that anyone's saying. So for two hours, we played in silence and grunts. And as we were leaving, I turned to this young man and I racked my brain of what I could possibly say to start a conversation with him. And so I said, what do you do? It seemed like an innocent enough question, but I know, and I think if we're honest with ourselves, we know that behind that question, we want to know, are you valuable? Do you have anything in your life that I should respect? Are you somebody that I should listen to? Somebody that I should pursue relationship and connection with? Have you been successful? Are you a hard worker? I followed that question up with, well, where do you live? An apartment, a condo, a home, what town? Still building his profile in my mind. Continuing with, where did you go to school? Are you educated? Are you smart? We might continue by asking, do you have children? And if so, what have your children done? What are they good at? We've bought into this lie that we live in a world of scarce resources. And we have entered ourselves into a frenetic competition. And as we stand there with strangers and with loved ones, we're constantly comparing ourselves 
to them and finding out where we stand in this competition of life. So this is who this rich young ruler is, a man that at the very core only perceives himself through what he has done. And he comes to Jesus, and I suspect that he is connecting with Jesus because he too wants to pursue wealth, authority, and influence in eternity. And Jesus seems like the fast track to it. And so he kind of butters him up a little bit. He calls him good teacher. He goes down on one knee, and, and Jesus doesn't have any of it. But when he asks how he can have this great wealth in heaven, Jesus tells him exactly what he wants to hear. We can open to verse 19, and it says, But to answer your question, you know the commandments. You must not murder. You must not commit adultery. You must not steal. You must not testify falsely. You must not cheat anyone and honor your father and mother. Rich young ruler has to be feeling good about himself. This is a list of do's and don'ts that I can easily check off. A list that I can pretty confidently say I've achieved throughout my life. I haven't murdered. I haven't stolen. I've been nice to my parents. And he's feeling good. But I find it interesting as at first glance, this just seems like, you know, a list of commandments off the top of his head. But in reality, these are five of the ten commandments found in Exodus 20. They're commandments number five through nine. They're the do's and don'ts of the Hebrew law. They're the easy ones. But Jesus has suspiciously left out commandments one through four and commandment ten. One through four are all about the creator's relationship with his created. It's all about being in relationship with a God far greater than we. And Jesus recognizes that we can do nothing to be in this relationship. Instead, vulnerably, we must place ourselves before God and enter into relationship with him. And the tenth one, which cannot have happened by accident, is do not covet your neighbor. Do not compare yourself to the wealth of those around you. Do not compete against one another for success and authority. Instead, be in relationship with me. Be in relationship with one another. And so the rich young ruler makes the mistake after he's feeling pretty good about his, his future in heaven by following up just to make sure he's heard correctly. And Jesus pauses and it says his expression changes and he says, oh, there's one more thing. Give up everything that is important to you. Sell all of your possessions. Give to the poor and follow me. He sums up those five commandments that he has left out by saying, be vulnerable, leave it all behind so that you can enter into my glory. I don't think Jesus was worried about the possessions. I don't think that he was trying to fund a Kickstarter for this new religion that he was starting about redistributing wealth to the poor and needy. If we remember just a few weeks before, 
Jesus just fed a crowd of 5,000 people with five loaves of bread. He is not somebody that is confined by his resources. And he is certainly not lacking in cash flow. Instead, he wants this man to be with him. To be in his presence. And for this rich young ruler, this is a very physical being. Jesus is standing there before him. His hand is out and he's telling him, leave it all behind. Give up on all the glory that you've been seeking and just come with me. How can you help out my kingdom? Just be with me. Experience this with me. Come with this ragtag group of men that I have with me. People that you never would have associated with before and go. For us, it's different. For us, it's a spiritual being that we are invited into. It's an invitation to give up the things that we have in our lives, the to-dos in our life, so that we can make space to be with God. So that our hearts can be motivated, not by our own glory, but by His. If you're anything like me, you're sitting here right now thinking of all the to-dos that you have for the day. Maybe you have company coming over later and your house is a mess. The leaves have piled up outside and we need to rake them today. We have a business presentation in just a few days and it is overwhelming us with anxiety. For a student, we're falling behind on our classwork and need to finish up that last minute report. God says, leave it behind. Be okay with not having it all together. It's all right that your lawn has grown too long and the leaves have piled up. Be with me. When I was a senior in high school, I ran track and field, and I was fortunate enough that year to win the state championship. And as a senior that had won a state championship, I was fairly full of myself. Let's be entirely honest here. And heading into college, I had huge expectations for myself. Once I committed to a Division three school, I pretty much knew that I would be a perennial contender at nationals and that I would likely go on to years of being an All-American. And my expectations weren't that unbased. In fact, my coach who had recruited me was expecting the same things out of me. My teammates thought that I could do it as well. And so as I went into my freshman year... I was dictated by my assumption that I would immediately succeed. And I worked incredibly hard to get there. As you can imagine, I didn't get along very well with the sophomores, juniors, and seniors that had already put in years of work to be where they were. I was unapologetic about my desire to knock them off the varsity relay team. And I did everything I could to make sure that would become a reality. Each and every race, I was overwhelmed with anxiety and had sleepless nights the entire week before. Just before every single race, my freshman through junior year, I threw up in a trash can, overwhelmed by the fear of failing, by the fear of finishing behind someone by the fear of not living up to the expectations others had for me and the expectations that I had for myself. I made no friends. Track was miserable. 
and we went to nationals. We fell apart at nationals. We didn't do well. I ended up being placed on the alternate for the final race. But we were in a good spot for the next year. We were only graduating one guy from our team, and I would fill that spot adequately enough. And my expectations were going into a sophomore year. Everything had lined up right. And so I worked as hard as I possibly could to get there. Over Christmas break, the four weeks that most of our guys stopped running and let their legs catch up with them, I put on hours and hours of training. Every night from midnight to 2 a.m., I would hit the hill outside of my house and I would sprint up and down, up and down, believing that if I was able to overcome my exhaustion, the cold and fatigue in the hill, then certainly I would stay strong in the midst of my race. It worked. I came back into the season ready to go. I was in the best shape of my life, and I looked good. The final tune-up before our first meet of the year, I went out with the rest of the varsity relay and pulled my hamstring. I was out for the next six weeks, and by the time I came back, my competition had pulled even. And so again, I put in hours. I came early. I stayed late. And again, got myself back in a good position. And again, I tweaked my hamstring. We didn't do well at the regional meet. And we just missed out on going to nationals. Mostly because I had underperformed. Had I run to expectations, we all would have gone to nationals. But I failed. The next year was going to be different. It was junior season. Again, same story. Worked hard. Got myself in great shape. One week before the season started, I came down with the flu and my fever spiked to 106 degrees and I was rushed to the emergency room as I went in and out of consciousness. I assumed that I would get back on the track in a couple days and everything would be better. And in the first meet, I got dead last And ran a slower time than I had in my freshman year of high school. My body was exhausted. Again, it took me weeks to get back to where I wanted to be. And again, putting in the extra hours put extra strain on my muscles. And again, I pulled my hamstring. We didn't go to nationals that year. Mostly because I did not live up to expectations. Again, we didn't graduate anyone from this team, so certainly senior year would be the year. Same story with preparation, and same story. The final tune-up for the race, I pulled my hamstring. That was the day that I embraced the fact that I would never be an All-American. I would never go to nationals. I would never reach my own expectations for myself. And that was also the day that I began loving track and field. Suddenly things changed for me. I no longer had restless nights. I no longer threw up before my races. I didn't rub my teammates the wrong way. I started a small group with some of the freshman guys on the team. I stayed late after practice to help them work on their technique and their handoffs, something I would have never done because I feared that they would take my spot. When I finally had the opportunity to be healthy and run again, I just loved the feeling of running fast. It didn't matter that there were guys in front of me. 
All that mattered that I was out on the track again and I was experiencing this true gift that God had given me. You see, I had to let go of my desires, my success, my competition to really enter into what God had called me to in the first place. I had to realize that track was never about me. That running fast was never about beating others. But it was only useful in that it glorified God and it brought others towards him. The next year I did go to nationals. And I sat in the stands and cheered on the relay team that I had worked so hard to be a part of as they became all Americans. It was a lesson that I needed to learn. And I think it's a lesson that is pretty applicable to all of us. It's not track and field for each and every one of us. For some of us, it's the desire to get that bonus, get that raise, get that promotion. Students, it might be the desire to get those straight A's, to get into the college that you want to, to secure the future that you knew you deserved. It might be to find yourself in a position of influence and honor here at our church. Rewarded for all the good things that you have done. It might be our desire to make our families look acceptable to those that live on our left and right. But Jesus is telling us that when we try to do, when we try to gain our own glory, our own success, we miss out on a chance to be a part of God's glory because we are far too distracted by our own expectations. When we aren't vulnerable, when we don't embrace the fact that what we achieve means nothing, when we don't believe that we're incomplete, when we compare ourselves to others around us, we work grueling hours, forgetting about the effects it has on our friends and family, striving only for the next achievement. We experience fear, stress, and disappointment as we struggle to live up to our own expectations. Expectations are never realistic. They're always just a little bit out of our grasp. And when we finally do get them, what do we do? We set a new expectation for ourselves. And we throw ourselves in this cycle of competition against one another and against us. We miss opportunities to be a light to those around us as we view others only as barriers to our own success. How can we be a light of Christ in this world if the people that we interact with, we only can perceive them in terms of their value to us or in terms of the barrier that they have placed in front of us from achieving our own glory? We run our children into the ground as we use them as some sort of measure of our own personal worth, putting unreal expectations on who they should be, what they should do. We watch our faith wither and die as we try to do everything we can to be in relationship with God. 
And finally, we mourn the reality that we are not enough. When we try to do things to earn glory, we drastically impact our ability to be in the presence of God. And we lose out on our opportunity to be overwhelmed by His glory. But when we are vulnerable, when we are able to identify that we are incomplete, when we are able to identify that we don't have it all together, we recognize the irreplaceable value of being with our loved ones. Those unbreakable communities that we have been talking about. When we realize that we're incomplete, it frees us to be in that relationship. We experience relief as we see ourselves only as a piece of God's great plans. Remember, the God that used five loaves of bread to feed 5,000 people does not need a lot to work a miracle. And in fact, our failure is enough. We allow ourselves to be approachable as we interact with our peers in a way that seeks to lift them up. Now suddenly our conversations, our workplace companions, our friends, our siblings, our sons and daughters, and our spouses are all opportunities for us to lift others towards their success and God's glory. We watch our children begin feeling a sense of belonging and value as they recognize that I don't need to do anything to gain my parents' love. In fact, my parents' love is a reflection of how God loves them. We refresh our faith as the water of Christ begins to flow again because we are completely dependent on our Savior. And finally, we rejoice in the reality that we are not enough. God offers us a new way of living. He's standing there before us with his hand reached out. He's asking us to come. But are we like that rich young ruler? Unwilling to give up on the success that surely we have found. Unwilling to give up our authority and our influence. Our final word for today is to be. Embrace yourself as incomplete. Because it is only then that we can understand that it is God that will make us whole. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you embrace our failures, that you know exactly who we are and you were still willing to send your son. That you don't want us to seek after revisions or success to change your view of us but that you love us as incomplete failures. Lord, we pray that we would be shaken today 
so that we might let go of the things that our hands are so tightly holding on to. And we might vulnerably be in your presence. Amen.